When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Precision of Language Edition. It's Wednesday, August 20th, 2014, and on today's program, we're going to talk about the new adaptation of Lois Lowry's young adult novel, The Giver. Was Hollywood able to overcome its penchant for sameness when it adapted Lois Lowry's award-winning children's novel? And then, ironic misandry. Is this feminism sharpening its teeth or just unproductive meanness? And finally, movie soundtracks from Saturday Night Fever to Guardians of the Galaxy. We'll talk about some of the best marriages of sound and film. Also, we have a Slate Plus segment today. Julia, you want to fill us in? Yes. Actually, we're going to continue our conversation about cocktail party conversation and what is acceptable therein. Last week, we talked about Troy Patterson's essay on whether it's acceptable to talk about the weather. He also held in that piece that it is unacceptable to ask people, what do you do at a cocktail party? There's now a counterpunch from the internet. Paul Ford has written an essay on politeness in which he insists that asking people what they do is the key to cocktail party politesse. So we will once and for all battle it out. When you're at a cocktail party, can you ask the other guests, what do you do? All right. So speaking to you just now was Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dana. And we also have joining us this week, as Steve's last week on vacation, Slate's culture editor and also the co-host of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast. Hi, Dan. Hello. I don't think it is Steve's last week on vacation. You're going away next week, but Steve is also away. So I'm yeah. just going to be holding down the fort by myself with a ragtag band of excellent substitutes. Whatever inner tube Steve is floating on right now, drinking a margarita, he will still be floating there next week. You're just going to go float with him. Have fun, guys. <laughs> Drifting downstream. Same margarita. All right. On to our first topic, The Giver. This is an adaptation 20 years in coming of Lois Lowry's Newbery Award-winning 1993 novel. It's set, and we'll see if this sounds familiar to any of you, in a dystopian futuristic community where choice has been eliminated so people never have to feel pain, hurt, or love again. Over the past 20 years, The Giver has become one of the most influential young adult novels, the progenitor of novels like The Hunger Games, Divergent, etc. But more than 20 years later, the movie adaptation has finally made it onto screens with Jeff Bridges as its producer and one of its stars as well. What do we think? Was it was it 20 years too late? I'm going to throw it to you first, Dan, because I know that you're a fan of the novel. And I read the novel sort of in preparation for the movie, but you've been a fan of it for some years. So I want you to share your feelings, the giver style, and uh, precision of language, please. Uh, I will try to exhibit precision of language. Thank you for throwing to me. Uh, I apologize in advance for anything that I may get wrong. We accept your apology. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was very disappointed by the movie of The Giver, as I think many fans of the novel were. I'm not exactly in the, the target age group for that book. It has become a real touchstone book for millennials, I think, because it became a curriculum book in many schools in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, it's also been challenged in many schools for various reasons. We can get into that later, but it's become a, you know, it's a book that people read in school, and it's one of the first books, I think, for many kids that gives them 
the notion or or um, authorizes the notion in a way that the people in power in their lives may be lying to them, may be withholding things from them or deceiving them. And I think that's a really powerful notion to come to kids. And for many kids, it comes thanks to the giver, thanks to Jonas's discovery that the people in power in his community, though they mean the best, are in fact doing monstrous things. Um, and the movie, as as is the case with many Hollywood adaptations, uh, has smoothed out some of the things that made The Giver so powerful and instead has made it sort of, instead of a cry against sameness, it has turned into a, a sort of tribute to sameness in its attempts to look, sound, and feel like almost every other Hollywood dystopian love triangle adventure that has come out in the last five years. I totally disagree with that. Actually, I thought that the movie was distinctive and looked kind of different and had some different rhythms than some of those other movies. It didn't work or resonate for me, but it was not because it was the same as those well, other well, but films. But those different rhythms are solely like the final remaining remnants of the book's actual plot, whereas everything that was changed from the book to the movie was in a sort of dire attempt to make it as much like those other movies as possible. Ah, Well, I have never read the book. It, it came out just a little bit too late for me to absorb it into my own childhood, and I haven't gone back to it since then. So coming to the story totally cold... I was struck by the fact that this didn't look like a totally shameless Hunger Games ripoff. Obviously, the notion, the fact that this movie got made at this era, I think probably owes something to the wild success of some of these teen dystopian franchises like The Hunger Games and Divergent. But, you know, I just saw a trailer a couple weeks ago for The Maze Runner, which is some other thingamajig where the kids, they got to do battle and there's horrible beasties and there's trapped and the blah, blah, blah. And it just looked like full on Hunger Games rip off. And this has a very distinct visual style, very distinct themes that I think are fairly uh, different from the movies that have that have uh, cropped up recently. And even just its pacing and tone and the form of it. I mean, it was visually a much more interesting movie than some of these other ones that are just full of like grungy slash excess of the Hunger Games visual spectrum. You know, so one theme of, I believe, the book and certainly the movie is that color has been drained from the world. They've leached out all the color because it's an exciting element that might cause war or strife. So in an effort to have a completely placid, peaceful world, nobody can see color anymore. And they take these daily injections that rob them of their ability to to see hues and to remember what pigments are. And our hero slowly begins stopping taking his injections and begins to see the world in color. Um, and then also in his new role as new receiver of memories, which is the person within these uh, straightened communities who inherits the full understanding of what the world used to be, I guess, in case they need it later. It's sort of like an insurance person. This person gets to be a vault of of, of all the information they might need, goes and has these like long professorial sessions with Jeff Bridges where they clasp hands and then like stunning visual flashbacks happen that kind of look like telecom commercials where, you know, you see images of the Hajj and like people break dancing and a really sick party in Brooklyn and <laughs> like a like a Renaissance wedding and they all flash by and bright colors. And then Jonas wakes up and is like, whoa, that was so cool. Um, so, you know, but but just that I, I thought that that trope was very cheesy, like it didn't move me emotionally. I found it kind of boring. Like, oh, I'm so wooden. Oh, wow. What? A wedding? Wow. Weddings must have been so glorious and wonderful. Why don't we have wedding? You know, whatever. 
in terms of the plot, it was boring. But in terms of the visuals, I thought it was kind of interesting. Like, even the way some of those flashback scenes are portrayed, um, there's, like, weird impressionistic camera blur tactics. This sort of Renaissance wedding scene ends up almost looking, like, Renoir-ish from the way that the photography kind of blends and blurs around itself. So I thought that the movie was not a puddle of sameness. I thought it was bad, but bad in a unique way. <laughs> I mean, I think we should all specify this movie is really bad, right? I mean, I really felt like this was one of the... I, this is definitely going to be on the, the list of the dogs of 2014, I think. There's not a moment of it that, do, that has any authenticity. It feels so synthetic and so kind of lazily put together for me. I didn't feel like anyone, including Jeff Bridges, who's gotten some praise for his performance. I mean, I love Jeff Bridges in anything, but he just could not do anything with this role of the grizzled giver of knowledge who sits around in a room full of books and transmits images of Nelson Mandela into a young boy's <laughs> wrists. <laughs> Wait, you didn't think the visuals were kind of cool? I mean, I guess the use of black and white, it's, it's familiar from Wizard of Oz all the way back, like the idea of a colorless world that slowly becomes invaded by color or that gets these patches of color now and then. I, I guess it expresses that theme of the book fairly well, but there was no moment where I felt dazzled by the visuals, and those dream sequences were just embarrassing. I mean, it was like some mixed montage of kind of nature clips from PBS and, you know, literally Nelson Mandela and the Tiananmen Square tank guy, and none of it contextualized or kind of explained to this boy, but just sort of flashed at him like this, this YouTube montage that he was supposed to maintain, somehow receive all human knowledge from. Yeah, YouTube, I think, is an, like, is an accurate description of the aesthetics of those moments. It's like a supercut of human civilization. Right. It was like, <laughs> it was like you, were, you told some 22-year-old, hey, can you make me a supercut of human civilization? You've got an hour. <laughs> and Meryl Streep is in this movie, which you also sort of think like Meryl Streep can make something out of anything, right? She can make lemonade out of any lemon of a roll. But I think also, again, she just she she seemed really out of place. She didn't really get any scenes with Bridges or anyone because she's a hologram. Her character is constantly being projected. She's sort of the leader, the ice cold, you know, ice in her veins leader of this futuristic society. And we only ever see her just beaming in, you know, so there's not really any sense of interactivity in that role. I'm taking her as a management icon for my future at Slate. I'm just going to start hologramming into your office in D.C., Coif, and, uh, you know, insisting that you use precision of language in all of your editing. I'm getting you a narrow jacket. <laughs> and, and a big gray, gray wig. Um, that is going to suck. I, wow, I was super bored during this movie. Like, I just didn't think it worked as a piece of entertainment at all. And in fact, it even made me think back to my critique of the final 20 minutes of Guardians of the Galaxy and, and think, well, maybe Hollywood knows what it's doing. And this movie would have been better if there had just been 20 minutes of things blowing up at the end of it. <laughs> like, it ends with this kind of, like, improbable trek across a varied landscape where... Oh, God, I guess this is a spoiler. Some of you might see this. Never mind. But it doesn't ex end with a bunch of explosions. And therefore, I was like, I suddenly was like, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe Hollywood's right. And I would have liked this movie better if it just ended on explosions. But I found some admirable stuff in it. I don't know. I thought that the production design was cool. They ride these cool bicycles around. I guess the best thing I can do is say that they have like weird bicycles that are visually striking. That's not that's not a range. There are no spokes movie. in the future. Everyone should know this. The future <laughs> is without spokes. Here is my main problem with the movie. It seems to me, and Dan, you can speak to this because you have read the book, the primary issue I felt was that the problem of this world does not reflect in any way the problems of the modern world. Conformity seems to me not at all to be the main issue of, you know, 2000 aughts, 2000 teens America. I think Lois Lowry has said she grew up on a military base and that she 
uh, based the book in some part in memories of this very regimented childhood. And that makes a lot of sense when you, re- when you read and understand that and think about at least the movie version of the book. But isn't there a problem today that, like, we've all abandoned conformity? Like, the only conformist thing we can do now is celebrate our iconoclasm. Like, oh, you're such a special snowflake. Oh, you're so different. Oh, he has such a unique view on the world. Like, all we do is celebrate how different we are all the motherfucking time. And so this movie is just like feels like it's a trenchant critique of something that is no longer a problem. And therefore, any ideas that are in it seem like boring and off point. Right. It's an idea of dystopia that comes from really mid-century, right? It's, it's almost a 1984, Brave New World, kind of a, a vision from, from a, an earlier set of dystopias. Right. Whereas Hunger Games, for all you can critique its imitators and critique the books themselves and the movies, Hunger Games is about income inequality. It's about class structure and income inequality. And um, well, and like, the media and right? media reality and the shows. ravages of reality TV, like whether its ideas are interesting or simplistic, it's touching nerves that actually are exposed and raw in modern society. This feels like a curio, like sameness. Whoever. I mean, you guys have kids that are older than me. Has anyone ever told them they really need to be the same as all the other children and they can't indulge their beautiful free spirits? Yeah, I see that. I mean, my only possible comeback to that, which I only half-heartedly believe, is that maybe there is some sort of transgenerational sense. For kids of around 11, which is how old the protagonist is in the novel, he's aged up to 18 in the movie, maybe there is some universal sense of the grown-up world being this, this frightening thing that you have to be initiated into and become like everyone else. The idea that childhood ending has this has this sense of joining the marching orders of, of the adult world. I think that that might have some, you know, even in a world that does, that sort of has full of niche marketing and, and celebrates individuality, there might be some sense that growing up is a, a trading in of one's individuality. Dan? I, I also think that the conflict at play in this story resonates with kids specifically in a school environment. I think that a lot of kids read this as a story about the sort of secret, awful plans that the teachers and superiors and executives in their school environment have for them. And this sense that they, you know, they maybe are told at home that they are special snowflakes. They maybe live their lives as if they're special snowflakes. But that school, almost every school that any kid goes to, is still a pretty regimented place, a place where conformity is prized, a place where not making waves is makes you the ideal possible student. And I do think that people, that kids really relate to that and and apply that specific sort of template to their response to this book and now presumably to this movie. Like, I agree with you that even 20 years ago when this book was written, I think conformity among children was more prized in the adult world and 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 conformity was more feared by children uh, as a real possibility as something they might be shoehorned into than it is now. I mean, parenting styles, I think, have modified so much just in the last 20 years that 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 doesn't track quite as well. But I do still think that for a lot of kids, the institutional structures in their life still drive them towards the kind of sameness that they fear. And so a book and a story that shows that that sameness is corrupting and dangerous uh, and that the people instituting it are lying to you still has a real power. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the people in charge and the people in power are deceptive and have ulterior motives and aren't telling you everything, that's probably, sadly, a timeless tale that will always have some resonances. But I, but it's true. I mean, it's interesting to even think about the differences from 20 years ago to today, right? 20 years ago was the rise of grunge and, you know, quote unquote, alternative music. And there could be something called alternative music because the notion was there was a mainstream from which to alternate, you know. And 
it just doesn't feel that way anymore. The world doesn't feel that way. Right. Um, the story, it does feel like a very 90s story and that it's the 90s were a time in, you know, as Portlandia has told us, in which everyone got weird finally after years and years of not being weird. Right. But I think this movie, we can all agree, is maybe just not weird enough. Well, so here is my here's my question about this movie and my concern with it, which is that um, the book, what I really prize about the book and what I love about the book is this sense that I've always gotten from Lois Lowry's writing and something that I wrote about when I profiled her a couple of years ago, which is the sense that she is very specifically talking to kids in a way that many other children's authors don't do. The, you know, a book like The Hunger Games, I think, is is a, y, is a YA novel in theory, but in practice, it's meant to appeal to as broad an audience as possible. Whereas The Giver, specifically, I think is a book and a story that feels very different to a 12-year-old or an 11-year-old than it does to any adult who would ever read it. I think the when adults read this book or see this story, it can seem a little obvious or blunt. Um, it is not hard for us to sort of see the directions the story is going to go. It is not hard for us to tease out the mysteries of what is going on in this universe. For a 12-year-old reading this book, it really does feel like a revelation, I think. Um, and the And the unveil of that story really really has a great deal of power the way that the way that you become aware as Jonas does of what is happening in this world. My frustration with the movie is that everything that was done to this story to make this a movie was done for the explicit purpose of broadening its appeal of making it appeal to older kids by making the main characters older than they are in the book by adding a romantic subplot by adding an adventure subplot by adding a, a drone pilot a drone pilot who just happens to be Jonas's one of Jonas's best friends by adding a scene where Jonas gets picked up by the drone and flown across the landscape and dropped into a river and and so I understand, you know, that when you make a movie out of something, you want as many people as possible to see it. And that is part of the Hollywoodification of any property. But this seemed to me to be a very specific object lesson in the way that a story with very specific, wonderful appeal can get broadened by Hollywood in a way that that no longer makes it have any utility even to the people who might once have loved that story. And so it's a, it's a real frustration to me because, and I, I hope, I hope, 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 hope it is a real frustration to Jeff Bridges too, has been, who has been spending 20 years trying to make this a new movie. I like Jeff Bridges and I think he has good taste and is an interesting guy, but I hope that when he looks at this movie, he feels like this sense of disappointment because I think that he really, I think he blew it. I mean, I think that, I think, and maybe there was no other option. Maybe there's no other way this movie was ever going to get made. And he's just happy to have it out there. And he hopes that it will send people to the book and it will mean something to them. But this seems to me to be one of the more horrendously botched adaptations of a, of a property that I've seen in a really, really long time. And that frustrates me. It makes me angry. Maybe he'll get a little injection every morning that will help him forget that it was a bad movie. <laughs> maybe that will happen, yes. All right, so we are sending people to Lois Lowry's Giver. We are sending them away at top speed from the recent adaptation of The Giver. Correct? Correct. Correct. All right, moving on. On its most basic level, ironic misandry functions like a stuck-out tongue pointed at a playground bully. But ironic misandry is more than just a sarcastic retort to the haters. It's an in-joke that like-minded feminists tell even when their critics aren't looking as a way to build solidarity within the group. 
Or so writes Slate's Amanda Hess in her article, The Rise of the Ironic Man-Hater. She's tracking the rise of a recent trend on feminist blogs and in Internet conversations about gender that's been named ironic misandry. And I want you guys to help me define this because it is such a vague sort of floating concept. But essentially, we all know what misogyny is, right? It's the hatred of women. The word misandry is something that was not really in the air until, what, the last year or two, maybe? I mean, it's existed. It's just, you know, a lot less common. I think maybe is fair to say. Maybe not. We can debate that. But, you know, it's similarly the hatred of men. And I actually think the easiest way to understand the trend that Amanda's talking about in her very smart piece is some examples. So there are T-shirts that say, I drink male tears. There are mugs you can buy that just say male tears on them. So the notion is that your morning coffee is, in fact, just whatever the men in your life produced after you berated them with your hateful speech. She cites some wonderful examples of this from The Toast, which is a, a site that Dana, you and I are both big fans of, where one of its creators, Mallory Ortberg, rewrote some nursery rhymes to make them more misandrist. So, hush, little baby, don't say a word ever. Your sister is talking is <laughs> one of the examples that Amanda cites. So I think you get the, you know, once I once Amanda pointed to those examples, I was thinking, oh, right, I've seen this round. This is this is sort of a kind of counter, 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 counter attack type move in wherever we stand in the feminism wars. And I recognize that particular bit of jujitsu. So I guess we're here to talk about the rise of this trend, what we think of it. Do we think it's funny? Do we think it has any anywhere to go or any future or anything to say about feminism? And I noticed that we haven't yet consulted with the man in the room. Dan, is he, is he even allowed to talk during the segment? <laughs> I'm going to take I'm going to take the uh, the lock off of his his mouth mask. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you guys. <laughs> well, we were thinking if we could stretch that intro out even a little bit longer. <laughs> Uh, so I'm a fan of ironic misandry. And I think one fun thing about ironic misandry for guys is that getting the joke is a really, really great way for guys to literally be like, guys, hey, women, women, I get the joke. It's okay. I'm not threatened. <laughs> oh, but that's somehow super handy. Just makes me so sad. I don't know why. <laughs> I just, I don't know. Dana... Do you, do you share, Julia, my sense of, I mean, as much as I love the toast, which I endorsed, I think, on the show, like the week it started, the toast is hilarious. Mallory Ortberg's takeoff on the misandrist fairy tale is awesome. I think a lot of these jokes are really funny, and I wouldn't say no to a gift of one of the mugs. But as a kind of rhetorical structure, I don't know, I, I think that this relates to something in culture, particularly internet culture, that I'm not necessarily fond of, which has to do with, you know, the the battening down of sort of fake teams that fight other fake teams. And I'm not sure that beyond, you know, a, a brief sort of burst of, of jokes in the culture that this kind of strategy as a way of breaking down, you know, patriarchy, racism, like things that, that these strategies are trying to address, I'm not sure they're the most effective way to do it. Right. I guess the thing that I find slightly depressing about this trend and, you know, I should say it is interesting. It is a real trend. I think Amanda's piece does a great job of both pointing to what it is and helping explain some of the reasons for its rise and, and some smart ways to think about it. But to me, the thing that's depressing about this trend is that it feels like it's more about feminism as a brand identity than feminism as a 
political or persuasive message. And it feels to me symptomatic of a time we live in where nobody's actually trying to talk to anybody else. They're only just talking to themselves, you know? And so it's kind of a funny thing to say amongst yourselves, right? I mean, you were saying yourself, Dan, that it becomes, it's like, ooh, I'm on the team, guys. I get the joke. I'm on the team. I'm on the team, like, good modern people who believe that, you know, women have rights and, and are fully realized human beings. And, you know, we I did not doubt you were on that team anyway, but um, I'm, I'm happy to further acknowledge your existence on that team because you liked my photo of myself in an I Drink Male te- Tears t-shirt or that you would hypothetically like such a photo in the future. But I don't know. Isn't, like, didn't the women's rights movement arise out of the notion that one day we would all believe this? And it feels to me a little bit as though this trend suggests we're living in an era where it's like, well, some people are just going to be mean trolls on the internet and there's nothing we can do about that. So screw them and let's just hang out with all the cool kids who know what's what and like smugly exchange jokes. I don't know. I sort of feel like one benefit of this is that it is that it moves beyond sort of fruitless argument with those trolls and moves beyond it moves beyond even accepting their idiot worldview as being worth debating and instead addresses it with the total contempt that it deserves. And one way that this, that ironic misandry has sort of sprung up has been in a specific response to the men's rights movement, which, you know, is like the endless forever troll creating bugaboo of any conversation about women's rights or feminism in on the web today, which is that you know that if you ever write any piece about feminism, some men's rights advocate is going to show up in the comments and just loudly yell at you about how men are actually subjugated by man haters like you. And so one of the things I like about ironic misandry is that it essentially refuses to yield any high ground to those people. And it instead uses the comic nature of of this kind of response to brush a little dirt off your shoulder and be like, I don't give a shit about you. I'm perfectly happy to accede to the completely idiotic claim you are making in a comic way that that makes clear that you are dumb. And I I like that as a rhetorical device. I think it's a sometimes necessary rhetorical device in the age of the troll to be able to have a mechanism to completely dispense with someone as quickly and and dismissively as possible. But I guess I sometimes feel that uh, trolls and troll-like people in the world are more visible than they are prevalent and that it feels like a very feminist internet culture meme. And I think sometimes one of the problems with hanging out exclusively on the internet and talking to other internetties over your broadband on your Twitter and in your Tumblr and wherever else is that you just kind of forget the rest of the world and that there's change to be made there and people to talk to who are not, you know, like if you're aiming all of your rhetorical and intellectual and, you know, amusement rhyme generating firepower at like the asshole in the comments, like, isn't that sort of a waste of your resources? Oh, well, but, uh, but are people really doing that? I mean, I don't get the impression that comic misandry is the only arrow in the quiver of modern feminism, nor is it the only arrow in the quiver of most of the people who are using it. That's Mallory true. Ortberg writes plenty of things that are not just jokes about misandry, but in fact make substantive points about the world of women today. And so that is why I feel like this is useful. And I think that one thing that comic misandry allows women in some way is the right to occasionally actually experience real misandry and feel real misandry, which is a not illegitimate response to still the prevailing social structures in America today. I think it can it 
is a great way of dismissing trolls, but it's also a great way of stoking out just a little tiny bit of feminist fire. And I don't mind that necessarily. I guess I just don't think it's that productive to hate groups of people. I don't think you only have to be lucky or stupid to not hate men. I, I don't hate that many people, but I hate particular people for being jerks. Some of them are men and some of them are women, or I'm aggravated them or annoyed by them. But I, I think it tends to be reductive and, and in fact, stupid itself to assume that whatever I hate about any particular person or whatever bothers me about a particular person has to do with their manness. I tend to think it's because they're a jerk or an asshole or, right, maybe there's some sense of entitlement that is bound up with the fact that they're a man. But plenty of people are entitled for all kinds of reasons. And to me, the entitlement is more annoying than the manness. You know, I think I, I agree with you, Dan, that this this use of the basically the appropriation, right, the appropriation of someone else's criticism as part of your own strategy can be one arrow in the feminist quiver. But as far as its future as a, as a rhetorical strategy, I don't know. I don't see a lot there. I think I'm with Julia where I think dividing groups and pitting them against each other, even in fantasy and, and comically, is not necessarily the way to build a good future. Yeah, I mean, I think humor is the saving grace of many rhetorical strategies, right? If if you can get to it just being funny and eliciting a laugh, then it's a worthwhile rhetorical tool, I think, in some instances. And, you know, I'm not going to say I think that it's not a good idea at all. But I think it does point to just the fractured moment we're in on the web where we just talk to ourselves. And I find that a bit sad. So I disagree to some respect. I don't actually think that this is a really that divisive of a tactic. And I don't think it actually points to any kind of fractured America. I think that one of the things I like about this comic tactic, and I was sort of joking about it at the beginning of our conversation, but sort of not, is that it is, in fact, I think, really inclusive. It allows all kinds of people to laugh together and get behind this absurd notion of what feminism might theoretically be. The only people who it actually divides are idiots and assholes. And so I feel like the real benefit of this is that as time goes on and as the arc of humanity bends toward moral justice, more and more people can understand the absurdity of these notions, laugh along with them and enjoy them while just simply cutting out these smaller and smaller and smaller percentages of dummies who still think that um, to believe in the rights of women is to hate men. All right. Well, Dan, thank you for filling us in on uh, the hatred of your sex and what a great idea it is. Yeah. Finally, the man came and delivered the truth to us. My pleasure, ladies. (laughs) Finally, the man came and set us straight. Yep. Yep. All right. All right. So, listeners, tell us what you think. Are you gleefully drinking male tears out of your mug, or are you worrying that this is a, a divisive and, and mean trend in Internet conversations? Let us know at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, then. Let's move on. All right. So as regular listeners to the GabFest may know, the Guardians of the Galaxy awesome mix number one, the portion of the soundtrack of Guardians of the Galaxy that is a mix of various 70s pop songs, is number one on the pop charts right now. I endorsed it a couple of weeks ago, and Julia the following week rebutted with some better soundtrack. So that got Dan Coyce thinking about us doing a segment about movie soundtracks, not movie scores of music composed specifically for movies, but movies that compile in an awesome mix sort of way, uh, pop hits, usually of the the decade that their movie is set in, but sometimes not. And we were going to bring in some of our own favorites and talk about the art of composing a movie soundtrack from bits of popular culture. So uh, we we brought in some favorites to talk about, and uh, this is a huge conversation to have. But Dan, do you want to start since this was your, your pet topic? 
Sure. Uh, and one of the things I want to talk about was not only just the way that songs are used in movies, which I think is always interesting and fun to talk about, but also about these soundtracks as products. You know, it's unique and and surprising that that Awesome Mix Volume 1 is number one on the Billboard charts. And in fact, it is the first ever non-score soundtrack album that is a soundtrack album made up completely of songs that had previously been released by other people to ever hit number one on the Billboard 200. Like, this has never happened before. But these albums have often served for many people as their entree into different worlds of music. So, for example, this is not the one that I'm going to talk about in depth today, but, for example, the Big Chill soundtrack, for many people my age, was the first time we really heard a lot of sort of the great Motown hits of the 60s. The one that I want to focus on today um, is uh, the soundtrack from a 2002 film called Morvern Keller. It was a movie I really liked when it first came out, um, and it is the last soundtrack album that I had ever purchased on CD. It's the last physical CD of a soundtrack album I ever bought. And it is a really amazing soundtrack for a couple of reasons. One, it's used really well in the movie. The movie has a very sort of spacey, ethereal, dreamy, mysterious feel to it, and the songs on the soundtrack really reflect that very well. But I also like it because, as is not always the case, but as is the case in Guardians of the Galaxy, the actual music plays a sort of plot-driving role in the movie. And so the soundtrack, for me, became not only a reminder of how much I love this movie, not only a reminder of the sort of amazing mental state that this movie put me in, it also became a really great introduction for me in 2002 to a lot of music I hadn't really heard before. I didn't really know Can, for example, um, but there's a great Can song called Spoon on this soundtrack. Um, I didn't know Boards of Canada at all, but there's a beautiful Boards of Canada song called Everything You Do is a Balloon. Um, I had barely listened to Aphex Twin or Broadcast or a lot of other electronic music. I also didn't know Lee Hazelwood. I didn't know Lee Scratch Perry and several of the other 70s artists that are on this. And so the whole soundtrack also became a great entree to me to entirely different kinds of music than I ever and than I had, had ever heard before. And it has become one of the few albums in this age of shuffle that I will just listen to all the way through tracks 1 through 14, this soundtrack to Morvern Keller. Dan, that is a great one. And I actually have never purchased the Morvan Caller soundtrack, but I'm a complete fan of that movie. It was sort of my discovery of both Lynn Ramsey and Samantha Morton, as I remember. And it's true that there's no other movie with a mood quite like it. And I'm sure that it's set by the music in all kinds of ways that I don't clearly remember because I haven't heard the soundtrack in so long. Wow. I might have to see that movie again. I remember finding that movie confusing, slow, and kind of boring. That's just the Philistine in me talking. <laughs> but you were like 12 when it came out. Um. I also have to say, Dan, that in reviewing my experience of movie soundtracks, I don't care that much about movie soundtracks. I think literally the only one I've ever owned and enjoyed was the Dazed and Confused one that I mentioned last week. Uh, that is shocking to me, Julia. You never had like the Pretty in Pink soundtrack or Say Anything or The Big Chill or Pulp Fiction or oh, those fuck. are soundtracks that sold Pulp millions Fiction. of copies. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. I totally yes. forgot Pulp Fiction. That was a really good soundtrack. All right. Never that mind. That hit off, that like set off the whole wave of 90s soundtracks that interjected lines of dialogue from the movie bef between the songs as if the lines of dialogue were little songs of their own. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, it feels to me like there's two genres here. If we're talking about, you know, ex pre-existing song-based soundtrack albums, 
There's one where the director is just showing off his incredible taste in archive music. And I think the, you know, Quentin Tarantino is all about showing off his incredible taste in everything that he does. So to me, the Pulp Fiction one really feels like that. It's not focused on a particular genre or type of music. There are, of course, some particular sounds that recur through that soundtrack, but they they intersect kind of only fleetingly with the subject and setting of the movie and seem to have much more to do with the feeling and the vibe of the movie, which is maybe a little bit more advanced. The much more obvious thing to do with this kind of soundtrack, and it's what happened with Guardians of the Galaxy and these other soundtracks I endorsed last week, is to just like plant your flag in a decade and just plunk right down in Nostalgiaville. You know, the Big Chill soundtrack, that wasn't a big touchstone growing up, but you know, it, that was the sounds of the 60s because it was a group of people who were reuniting 15 years later, right? Or I forget what, even what the plot of that movie is, but it's... Um, yes, yes. You know, it's it's the sounds <laughs> of their childhood and it's revisited on the soundtrack. You know, another one that came up for me is um, Dirty Dancing. <laughs> which sort of blends the sounds of the 60s when the film is set with these like very 80s ballads and anthems from when the movie came out. And the blending of the two there is kind of masterful. It, it like brings back some very classic, very 60s girl group sounds. And then also, you know, of course, I had the time of my life and some other stuff. Hungry Eyes. Hungry Eyes. That Yes, that is like just such a great, great, ridiculous 80s ballad. And I think you often get an interesting sense of what the decade in which the film was made's view of the decade at which the nostalgia is aimed is through these soundtracks. Like, I think even in the distinction between the Dazed and Confused soundtrack and the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack, Dazed and Confused gives us a very, like, grungy, alty, 90s feeling view of the 70s sound. And right now we live in the, like, electronic dance music, anthemic, like every Rihanna track ever has it makes you feel like you're in a booming hall full of 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 wide-ranging huge sounds you know the 70s song selected for the guardians of the galaxy soundtrack have that feeling they're huge they're big they're booming they're sing-alongy they're anthemic um so i think you can kind of glean a bit about the decade in which the film was made from the way it mines the subject decade for particular nostalgia nuggets I actually brought in a few examples of, of soundtracks that do exactly that when I was trying to think of, of great soundtracks in the past. And unlike you, Julia, I'm a huge fan of movie soundtracks. I mean, scores especially, music that's composed especially for a film. But I have a lot of cherished albums that are movie soundtracks as well. And one of them I was going to mention that's a, of a great sort of early 80s view back on the 50s is the soundtrack to Diner, the Barry Levinson movie set in Baltimore yeah. that's sort of about a group of aimless young men. It stars Mickey Rourke and, I don't know, every young male star of, of the 80s. And the vision that it has of 50s music was something that was new to me. I mean, the 50s were so, with Happy Days and, you know, American Graffiti, I feel like there was a certain vision of the 50s that we had in the 70s and 80s. And, and Diner kind of changed that up a little bit. It, it brought, a, like, a little bit more blackness into the music than you heard on Happy Days. It's also very funny. It's got great novelty songs like Ain't Got a Home, which is a song I often sing to my daughter now that's sort of sung in different voices of a, a little girl and a frog, and the, the singer moves through all these different voices. So Diner is a great one.
And some other movies that have that sort of decade-specific nostalgia as seen from a later decade include Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, of course, great, another great 70s soundtrack, and that, again, constructs a very specific 70s songs that you might not have thought about. You know, really, some of them sort of just really tinny AM radio songs right. that, that died a quick death, you know, but that, that were revived wonderfully by, by PTA and Boogie Nights. And Velvet Goldmine, the, the Todd Haynes movie, Based on David Bowie, essentially, there's a character who is, is modeled after David Bowie, but David Bowie refused to license his songs to the movie. So as a result, the soundtrack album was put together, actually, in, with the help of Michael Stipe, who was one of the producers of the of the soundtrack, from all these David Bowie-like songs of that of that glam rock period. And the one that always sticks in my head, and there is such a wonderful moment in the movie, is the Brian Eno song, is the Brian Eno song, Needle in a Camel's Eye, that begins the movie. So as the as the credits roll, we see this, this group of young London teenagers dressed in these outlandish glam rock outfits. Christian Bale is one of them. And they're racing down the street. We later learn they're going to a glam rock show. And we hear this Brian Eno song, Needle in the Camel's Eye. Oh, that has such good energy. Doesn't that just make you want to get into the movie? I mean, who wouldn't want to see a movie that that started off with with that music? I mean, that sounds amazing. You guys are making me reconsider. I think part of why I'm not a big soundtrack fan is just that I, like, have never been a big album buyer. Like, when I was a teen, I was not the person who had cool music taste and distributed it to everybody else. I was the person who just, like, got mixtapes from my friends. So they bought the cool soundtracks and all the other cool albums, and then I drafted off of their musical awesomeness. And then now we live in the, like, streaming, mix it up, slice it up, dice it up era. So I've just never been an album person particularly. But I think part of the appeal of these mixtapes, and maybe part of why the Guardians of the Galaxy one has, has gone to the top, is that... The ideal soundtrack of this stripe, the ideal existing music soundtrack, is a little bit like a mixtape, which is sort of a dying form that doesn't exist that much anymore. But it's as though a director, you know, whose accomplishments are maybe primarily visual or encompass sound and storytelling and writing and visual, but, you know, who fundamentally you think of as like a film auteur. Like, on the side, they've made you a mixtape, right? They've made you a mixtape of these songs that gives you their particular slice or view on an era, in most cases, with, with the ones we've examined here, or in some cases with a very particular mood, as with the Morven Collar soundtrack or with um, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, or I think even earlier Tarantino soundtracks, too, like um, the Reservoir Dogs one also has a lot of great tracks on it. You know, so so that's part of what's fun about them, is that somebody's giving you, like, their slice of a particular pitch of musical history. Uh, one thing I want to point out here is that these mixtapes are not all really actually always made for you by the director, right? They in some ways reflect the director's taste, but in many of these cases, especially with Wes Anderson, there are uh, music supervisors whose entire job is to create these things, to find the right songs for moods, um, and to and to generate not only the music for the movie, but then also the music that ends up on a soundtrack album, which once used to be a valuable marketing technique and a, a revenue source for these films that might otherwise struggle to make money. And so, you know, for Wes Anderson, it's Randall Poster, who has been his music supervisor for years and years and for many movies. And obviously, it's Wes Anderson's taste that drives a lot of these selections, but it's also Randall Poster going out and getting a lot of these songs and making these things happen. One of my 
fondest wishes always for the Academy from year, year to year is for there to be an award for music supervision, basically. I mean, they give awards for score, they give an award for an original song, but there's no award to recognize what is so valuable for movies as highbrow as Wes Anderson movies and as lowbrow or middlebrow as Guardians of the Galaxy, which is the songs you select for your movie can make or break that movie. And it's a it's an unbelievably important part of filmmaking. Uh, and it's a shame that there's like no award for it. Maybe we should create our own Oscar. Maybe at Oscar time, we should just like get a bunch of musical supervisors in a room and have them like hash out what were the best albums of the year. That's a great idea. Have Randall Poster I endorse in here. this idea. All right. Done. All right. Well, we'll just we'll throw this one out to listeners as well, because I'm curious, what for you is the perfect marriage of song, original music and, and screen image? Let us know at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culture fest. And let us know what is the best soundtrack CD you bought at the age of 15. Yeah. Nice question. Well, folks, we've made it through another show and it's time for endorsements. Julia, what have you got? My endorsement this week is a favorite movie moment of mine. And I can't really speak to the whole soundtrack, but there is a, a moment in Postcards from the Edge, which I think maybe isn't even a movie I've ever seen all the way through. But there's a scene towards the conclusion where Meryl Streep is playing an actress and in the role she's playing within the movie, she has to um, like nail a country song. She has to sing a country song and nail the performance for the movie. And it also is representative of whatever's going on with her character. And then also within that, you see Meryl Streep being like, man, that woman can do anything, but can she like really sing a country song? So there's all these layers of can she do it-ness to the scene. And it's a closing scene of the film. And the song she sings is called I'm Checking Out of This Heartbreak Hotel. And it's this country song that was actually written by Shel Silverstein, who wrote a ton of country songs. But it's not one that, you know, is famous as A Boy Named Sue or anything like that. And Meryl Streep sings it, and it's a little bit warbly, and it's a little bit off pitch. But um, it just has great lyrics and a great rhythm. And somehow it became this totemic thing in my family growing up where we would all sing it all together. I think around the time that my mom was quitting a job um, and we would all just imitate all of Meryl's vocal warbles down to the tiniest little quiver and all of her, you know, she gets like growly at certain points and goes high at certain points. And it's just one of my favorite performances by an actor singing a song on screen and the lyrics themselves are really wonderful. So check it out on YouTube. It's Meryl Streep singing I'm Checking Out of This Heartbreak Hotel from Postcards from the Edge. Nice. I, I think Meryl Streep can really sell a song. It's almost not a question of whether she can sing or not. She can just put over a song incredibly well, as Mamma Mia amply proves. It's so funny because I, I clicked it up this morning and played it, and I was watching it for a minute, and then I kind of went over to a couple other tabs and was getting some work done. And when I was just hearing it come through without watching the performance, I was like, whoa, she's like a little bit reedy and off-key here. And then I went back to look at it and was like, this is mesmerizing. <laughs> but She's it's, a great example of the great karaoke performance being all about performance and not sing and not singing ability. But I'm surprised more people haven't covered the song. I mean, I haven't found a lot of versions of it, but it's just it's it's just kind of classic country um you know with sort of heartsick, heartache and moving on and checking out of this heartbreak hotel and it's 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 a great song. It deserves it deserves to a whole cover album of its own. Uh, but the YouTube performance is really worth checking out. Sounds great. Dan, what have you got? Uh, I'm going to recommend the third novel in Lee Grossman's Magicians trilogy. It's called The Magician's Land, and it just came out last week. And The Magicians, as some listeners may know, is, is a big best-selling novel, now a trilogy um, by the book critic uh, for Time. 
magazine, um, and it is best described as Harry Potter, but with sex and drugs. Um, it is about a school for magic that kids get into, but it is more like an actual high school than um, Hogwarts is in that everyone has sex with each other and drinks a lot and does a lot of drugs and uses magic for extremely bad ideas. But the third book in the trilogy, I thought was actually really spectacular. I did not really like the second book in the trilogy very much at all. And it led me a little, it made me a little bit dubious about this third one. Um, but uh, several reviews I read convinced me that I might enjoy it more, specifically Corey Sika's review in the Slate Book Review um, here at Slate, which suggested that in some ways this third book is a corrective to some of the sins of the previous ones and the way that they made the main character of the previous books, Quentin Coldwater, um, who is kind of a pain in the ass. This book sort of remedies the structural flaws of those earlier books and in fact makes it clear that those flaws were in some ways setups for the maybe unintentional setups but setups for the ways that this book would bring the the women in Quentin's life to the fore in very interesting ways and so I really liked it as a uh, and not only as a novel in and of itself, but it was a great capper to a trilogy in a way that trilogy cappers are not always that great. Often the third book is where these things go go all to hell. All right. So we have a song and a book so far, and I'm going to go with a movie. And this is related to our soundtrack discussion from earlier. I didn't get into this in our discussion because this is one of those tragic cases where the soundtrack album has almost none of the great songs from the movie. But I'm sort of going to endorse the whole movie because I think everyone should just see it. It's 1983's Valley Girl, directed by Martha Coolidge. <laughs> yes! It was Nick Cage's first big role. He had done a tiny role in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but it's his first real debut, and he's fantastic in it, absolutely fabulous. And uh, then the whole movie just is. Don't you guys love Valley Girl? I remember Nick Cage is someone whose career is totally mysterious to you if you are my generation, because you're like, he's hot? Wait, he's like a leading man? What? And then eventually you go back and you see Moonstruck and you see Valley Girl, and you're like, oh, everybody's just projecting forward from early Nick Cage, and so this weird, like, shriveled, balding lump of a man... That people seem to think is like oh, a leading man. Oh, my heart man. just sunk. I love Nick Cage and every guy's. I know, I know you do. And I, I just, you get when you see the early films, like what initial charm he was coasting on when he continued to get leading. He's just like got a character actor face and body. And he seems like a leading man. And when you see the early films, you understand why. When you first see his eyes peek up over the shower stall at the moment that he first sort of meets up with his Juliet, it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet story, Valley Girl, said in the in the, the San Fernando Valley. It's, it's to me is one of the great kind of romantic lead debuts of all time. And even though the, the main actress in this movie is sort of completely uninteresting, Nick Cage kind of brings out the best in her and really sort of seems like he's falling for this fairly generic actress named Deborah Foreman. But all, there's all kinds of great side roles. Frederick Forrest is the dad, is really, really funny. And Valley Girl is just tons of 80s fun. But the music, it's got psychedelic furs. It's got three incredibly good songs by this band called the Plimsolls that play live in, the, in a club scene in the, in the movie. And all kinds of like goofy novelty songs that you You've never heard anywhere else. And it also has, I think, the the first movie use of Modern English's I Melt With You and just this beautiful romantic scene of of the Romeo and Juliet of the Valley falling in love. So um, Valley Girl from 1983, that's my endorsement. All right. Thanks a lot, Julia, as always. Thanks, Dana. And thank you, Dan, for sitting in. It was great. Thanks, guys. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Julia Turner and Dan Coyce, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. 
Pull back them dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Help bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Well I've packed my bags And I paid my bill And I'm turning in my key And if those sad souls Down in the lobby Ask for me Just tell them I'm checking out this heartbreak hotel. I ain't gonna live on lonely street no more, no more. I found a new love. And a new place to dwell Where teardrops ain't soaking the floor So take down my suitcase and hand me my hat I'm going from sleighs it'll sway And you can just tell him 